Sometimes we think that uh, our effectiveness at neighboring or evangelism is measured by whether or not we get to present a, a gospel and they respond. And, you know, more often than not, great neighboring is just coming alongside someone in their spiritual journey and walking with them and letting God really dictate where that ends up and, and just fulfilled, fulfilling what we're called to do. So uh, kudos to Janae. That's just awesome. Uh, let's pray. Father, we are, are, are just thankful for your grace in our lives, your love for us. Um, Father, this morning, we don't want to be selfish with that. We want to share what we have with a, a hurting world. So give us the courage to do that and do it well and thoughtfully and in a way that is loving. Help us learn this morning what that might look like. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I uh, got to take my daughter Paige fishing last week for a couple days. Five kids, four girls. Out of the five, only one likes to fish. So I decided I was going to reward her, her good value system. So we went to Wyoming and stayed at a lodge and fished the North Platte River for a couple days. And just had a great time. I caught a ton of fish. In the lodge, and this is not a fancy lodge, it's just, you know, a fisherman's kind of thing. Um, there were 10, there was another group, 10 guys. They were all from California. And they were all uh, part of the board of an organization called California Trout. And um, they were there to, to, to fish. And um, what brought them together was their love of fishing. But they were, um, most of these guys were retired that's why they were on the board. Most of them were very wealthy. I mean, kind of way out of my league. I mean, one guy uh, owned a penthouse in downtown San Francisco and fished 80 days a year. I mean, these were wealthy, wealthy people. And they decided that uh, they would invite us into their group, and they had determined that in the evening, everybody eats together. They wanted to have substantive conversations. So they would come up with a question for the evening. And uh, it usually dealt either with politics or religion. So one night it was go around, share who you're voting for and why. The other next night it was tell us your top three political concerns worldwide. Well, when they found out I was a pastor, I became a bit of a target. <laughs> and it was just a ton of fun to be honest, because these guys are well-read, very intelligent, very successful, very articulate, and very, very opinionated. <laughs> One of the guys, a guy named by, by the name Charlie, was a doctor who had done a lot of research on leukemia and developed some of the protocols to help people live longer with leukemia. He's a very smart man. And he identified himself as a Jew, and he said, I, I see myself as a Jew. I don't really see myself as American. And I said, wait, wait, your family's been here for what, like 150 years? He says, yeah, but I'm a Jew. And I thought, okay. And he's a practicing Jew. He practices Sabbat and the festivals and all this stuff. But he's an atheist. And I go, I don't get it. How can you be an atheist and practice all this stuff? And he says, well... I do it because it's my identity and my tradition, and, and I always do it in Hebrew. 
if I, we did it in English, I couldn't do it because then I'd have to be saying words I don't believe. But if it's in Hebrew, I don't understand Hebrew, so it's fine. And I said, okay. <laughs> and uh, he, he was fascinating. His top three political issues were uh, the environment, obviously, uh, the preservation of Israel, and then a woman's right to choose. So we had lots of discussions. It was rather interesting. But I walked away from that whole experience with two observations. One, people hate to be proselytized. Uh, um, they don't want somebody twisting their arm to convince them that they have to believe like we do. They, they don't like to be pressured on the one hand. But the second thing I, I realized on the other is people want to talk about the spiritual dimension of life. I mean, these guys were all over asking me what I thought about the Bible and what was an evangelical and do you guys really believe this and how do you do it? I mean, they, they were very engaging uh, about really significant stuff. And I've discovered that that's true with most people. Newsweek uh, did a survey a number of years ago and asked people how important uh, spirituality was to their daily life. And 57% of the people said very important and 24% said somewhat important or, or 27% somewhat important. 80, that means 84% of the people we operate around have a huge interest, curiosity about the spiritual realities of life, uh, something we should be talking about. We're in the midst of a series on neighboring, and neighboring is one of our rhythms as a church. We talk about transform, neighbor, restore. Neighboring is us wanting to see God's rule and reign, the reality of Jesus, come into the lives of other people, figuring out how to share that with them. And we've kind of come up with a strategy that hopefully you're picking up of, of praying for people, of engaging, developing a relationship, engaging with them, and eventually sharing our story and the gospel story. And that's kind of the, the strategy we do for neighboring. I thought it would be great for us this morning to look at, at Jesus and his example of neighboring in the Gospel of John. Uh, when he talks to a woman, a Samaritan woman, and we're going to pick up some lessons from his interaction with this woman about how he goes uh, about the process of neighboring. So I asked Ben to come and, and read that story for us. It is found in John chapter 4. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 26. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, 
you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped in this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Ben. So I want to draw five lessons out of this interaction between Jesus and this Samaritan woman that I think apply to us when we neighbor. And the first lesson is simply this. We have to love the lost. Uh, let's go back to verses 1 through 5, 1 through 4. Uh, Jesus is having lots of success. The religious leaders, the Pharisees are realizing that. In fact, at this moment, John... The Baptist has been arrested in just a little while. He will be uh, uh, beheaded. Things are heating up. So Jesus has to go. He's down in the south, Judea, the south of the country. He has to go to the north, up to Galilee. Um, things are getting a little too hot. So he left Judea and back once more to Galilee. And then it has this little phrase, now he had to go through Samaria. And objectively, that's just not true. He didn't have to go through Samaria because, well, let's look at a map. Uh, um, if you were a good Jew, a religious Jew, w worried about, you know, staying clean and pure, and you would not go through Samaria. In fact, you would go down to the Jordan Valley, follow the river up, and then come into Galilee. You would do everything in your power to stay out of Samaria because the Samaritans lived in Samaria. And the Samaritans were a despised people. Uh, first of all, they were ethnically compromised. Uh, the Samaritans were Jews who had been left in Palestine when Babylon had attacked and had exported people. And Babylon brought other tribes into the area, and these Jews intermarried. So these Jews are half-breeds. They're, they're mongrels from the perspective of the pure Jews. So, so they sold out. So they were literally despised. Not only that, they were religiously misguided. Samaritans 
only believed in the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch. They, they rejected the rest. So not only were they ethnically compromised, they were religiously compromised. But worse than all that is if you got around a Samaritan and you touched one of them, you would become ceremonially unclean. So they were a very despised group of people. Now you need to understand that in that day, it was a ladder society. And what I mean by that, there was a social hierarchy. And they were like us. You would typically try to associate with your own kind on, with people on your level of the ladder. So you wouldn't deal with people below you. So these Jews thought the Samaritans were below them, didn't want, the biggest goal was to stay away from them because they would defile you. So you'd do everything in your power. I mean, you would go all the way around down to the Jordan Valley back up just to avoid Samaria, okay? But Jesus says, nope, I have to go to Samaria. And the reason is, is because he loves the lost. You see, in Jesus' mentality, there is no social hierarchy. There is no, no social ladder. From his perspective, everybody's the same. In fact, it's interesting, when you go to the book of John, in chapter three, Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus. And uh, from the Jews' perspective, Nicodemus is at the top of the social hierarchy. He's, he's educated, he's wealthy, he's connected, he, he, he's in the religious establishment. I mean, any, anybody would talk to Nicodemus, that's awesome. So Jesus talks to Nicodemus in chapter three. And then in chapter four, he goes to the other end of the spectrum. He talks to a Samaritan who is poor, who is uneducated, who is unclean, and a woman. You couldn't get any worse. And John puts those back to back. And the point is, look, in Jesus' world, there's no hierarchy. There's not the okay people and the bad people or the good people and the not okay people. They're just people. Because he loves the lost. You know, I've been thinking about this whole issue of neighboring. And I've come to the conclusion that part of the reason, maybe the reason we're not very good at it, has nothing to do with know-how or, or strategy or opportunity, but has everything to do with our hearts. I don't think we're very good at neighboring because we just don't have enough of a passion for the lost. I'm not sure we really, really care about other people's spiritual condition as much at least as we should. And I'm speaking to myself when I say this. I mean, and we, we come and get to know Jesus and our spiritual lives are transformed and turned around and we become a little complacent and we get satisfied and we kind of withdraw because, you know, we're, we're like everybody. We want to hang around with those people who are like us. We don't care that much. And it's a hard issue. It's a hard issue. I think we have to ask ourselves, do we really care about the spiritual lives of others. And I know when we think about that, we sometimes drink the Kool-Aid of our culture, and the Kool-Aid of our culture says, you know, you don't really have the right 
to try to convince or persuade other people of your religious persuasion, especially when it's so exclusive and you think you're the only way. To do that is intolerant and bigoted and inappropriate. We live in a pluralistic culture and you have to live and let live. So we kind of say, okay, we'll just shut up. And inside our minds, we're wondering, what right do we have to try to convince others of our religious convictions? Well, before I answer that question, I want us to step back for a moment and I want us to be reminded of what we believe about people. I want to give you a little bit of Christian anthropology, okay? And then we'll come back and answer that question because I think it's, it's a valid question. The first thing we believe about people is that they are created in the image of God. They're persons, they have will, they have intellect, they have emotion. Substantively, they're like God and functionally like the God, we, we are to rule and reign in this world and exercise dominion. We're, we're like God, but here's the important thing about created in, being created in God's image. What that means is every person intrinsically has infinite value in God's eyes. Every person you ever Meet. It doesn't matter what their ethnicity is, what their language is, what the color of their skin is. It doesn't matter what part of the world they live in. Every person has intrinsic value before God. Everyone. Infinite value. Second, not only do we believe that they have intrinsic value, but we believe that people are permanent. In other words, we believe that every person is an eternal being. I mean, right at this moment, we're, we're kind of in our earth suits. There's a physical side to us, but there's also a spiritual side to us. And the physical side to us may die, but the spiritual side to us continues to live and lives on into eternity. And we actually believe at some point we'll be resurrected. But people are for, for forever. Ever living never dying souls. So they have value and they're permanent. And third, we believe that people have a destiny. And what I mean by that is that people, these permanent, infinite, valuable people will spend eternity either with God or apart from God. Spend eternity with God in what we call heaven, that's God's space, or apart from God, into the space without God, which we call hell. Now, we don't like this notion of hell, but I want to remind you that the one who talks about heaven and hell the most is Jesus. And from his perspective, heaven and hell is what gives a lot of significance to life because it is telling you you, your decisions here and your life here makes a difference for all eternity. So people are valuable, they're eternal, they have a destiny, and that destiny is determined by what they do with Jesus. He's the answer to life. The only answer. That's what we believe. Now folks, it just seems to me that if that's what we believe, either we believe that's true or probably true, or maybe true, but either case, if we think there's validity to that, then it would be unethical, unconscionable, for us not to share that with other people because the stakes and the consequences are so high. 
How could we, we not tell every person we know if we really care about their spiritual condition, how could we not try to persuade them of the truth? Say, yeah, but, 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 but it's a pluralistic culture and you shouldn't propagate your religious view onto somebody else. Well, maybe we should. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine that a virus breaks out. It's kind of like Ebola, only worse, and there's no cure, and it's just ripping through people, and, and everybody's getting it, and it's deadly. It will kill you. And there's a group of people who, who because of their medical research and their science and their medical trials and their personal experience, have discovered a cure, and they're convinced it's the only cure. And they decide to do what? Well, they publish. They begin to tell everybody they can. In fact, they try to persuade the, the, the medical community and everybody around, hey, get the vaccine, because if you don't, the virus is going to kill you. Would we say to them, oh, you're being incredibly arrogant to say you found the only cure? How could you be so intolerant? How could you be so narrow-minded? And if you were one of those researchers, what would you say? I don't care if you think I'm narrow-minded. Let me tell you this. If you don't take the vaccine, you're going to die. Right? Well, that's kind of the situation. And what's interesting about that situation, those people who think it's narrow-minded, intolerant to believe that you're the only way, that you have the only answer, and you shouldn't try to persuade other people of it, they're doing the very thing they're telling you not to do. They're trying to convince you of their religious perspective. Their religious perspective is there's many ways and many truths. That's what's true. Therefore, you shouldn't say this. Well, wait a second. You're trying to convince me not to do the very thing you're doing. You're just as intolerant and narrow-minded. It's just my perspective is different. So let's have a good debate and figure out who's, who's right. And the reality is if we really love the lost, we will do everything in our power to communicate to them the truth because the consequences matter. So Jesus loves the lost. Second thing we learn from him is to neighbor well, we have to enter their world. Now let's go back to, to verse 6. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And he's sitting by this well, and it's noon. And, and noon, it's time for lunch, okay? This is the first time in history 12 guys go to get lunch for one, right? His disciples have gone into town to buy food. And it's noon, and it's the hottest part of the day, and Jesus is tired, and this woman's here getting water, and that's... That, that's just wrong. You, you get water at the beginning of the day. You get water at the end of the day. You don't come at the hardest point of the day to get water. But Jesus decides to engage her. And, and this is an amazing thing because you have to understand that in, in that culture, men would not talk to women in public unless they were prostitutes. That's the only time you would engage with a public conversation. Yet Jesus does it, and he breaks all these social conventions. 
and, and enters into her world to have this conversation about water. We're going to neighbor well. One of the things we have to do is enter into the world of the people around us. And what often happens times is we isolate ourselves. That's what religious people do because we want to, we're like everybody else. We want to hang around people who agree with us, think like us, act like us, or in our same economic category because it's more comfortable, Right? So, so there's always a natural gravitational pull to isolate out of society. But the gospel calls us to infiltrate the culture and society, to be salt and to light, to engage. And I want to look at, at the how of that. Uh, there are two things that, that Jesus has to overcome in the sense of how he does it. The first is he... He risks contamination, right? Because this woman's a Samaritan. He starts having a conversation. He becomes unclean. And that's what religious people worry about. We, we have this notion that the unclean make the clean unclean, right? And Jesus comes and has this radical paradigm shift where he says, wait, no, 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 it's not like that anymore. Now it's the clean touch the unclean and they become clean, and you look at the ministry of Jesus, I mean, he's always hanging out with the marginal people. He's hanging out with the prostitutes. He's hanging out with the sinners. He's hanging out with the tax collectors. He's hanging out with the lepers. He's hanging out with, I mean, he's hanging out with all the people. Everybody wanted to say, whoa. And we do the same thing. Because we're not sure it's safe or comfortable to hang around with those people who, who are different than us and think different than us. And I noticed myself falling into that. I'm sitting at dinner, and I'm engaging in this conversation with Charlie. And Charlie has read a couple books about the Old Testament as he's exploring his faith. My daughter's sitting there, and she's listening in the conversation. And Charlie goes off, and he says, you know, Abraham wasn't a real person. And the Old Testament wasn't written until much later, probably in the time of Josiah. And it's just a fabrication. And there's no archaeological evidence that the people of Israel were really in the desert of Sinai. And there's no evidence in the Egyptian records that they were ever defeated by this, this tribe of Hebrews. I mean, it's all fabrication. And inside I'm going, boy, I think it's time for Paige to leave. <laughs> and I thought, no, 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 that's not, not true. You know, all those questions have answers, and we began to dialogue. I mean, most of his arguments were silence, and the one book he read was incredibly biased, and there's good evidence for all kinds of things that Abraham existed, that camels were, in one argument, they're not domesticated until later. But there's answers to all that, and I began to realize, you know what? We fall into this, this trap of thinking that there's one question out there or one argument out there that, that when someone gives it, it's going to make all of Christianity collapse. And we got to protect the people we love from that. One, that's not true. And two, the way you protect them is to educate them to deal with those people who disagree. Train them well. And suddenly it became this great opportunity for me to dialogue with Charlie and eventually my daughter about his worldview and our worldview and what made sense and what was a legitimate argument, what was it not, why you could trust the Old Testament and how this all fit together. 
It was awesome. But there's a risk. The second thing that Jesus does is he sacrifices his comfort. I mean, it's the middle of the day. He's hungry. He's tired. I think the last thing he wants to do is engage with a spiritual conversation. But, but for him, her spiritual condition is far more important than his physical comfort. So he decides to engage. And it's easy to choose not to engage. I mean, I, I, I'm an introvert. You know what I like to do? I like to go home, raise my garage door, drive in, put it down, not talk to my neighbors, but I've made a commitment that if my neighbor's out, I'm going to go home, get out of my car, and go have a conversation. Sometimes it's the last thing I want to do. But I've got to figure out ways to enter into their world and allow them to enter mine. It's kind of like when you have kids. I mean, as a parent, you try to figure out how to engage your kid at their level in their world. I mean, I played, I told you this, I played tons and tons and tons of games of Candyland. I hate Candyland. My kids love Candyland. I played Candyland. I have five girls. Every one of them played soccer. I can't tell you how many soccer games I've gone to. And when they start soccer, it's just bunch ball. There's nothing more boring to do on a Saturday morning than watch little kids play soccer. Now, 10 years later, man, I was all over it. I wanted to go to the games because they were fun. But back then, but I had to enter their world. You know, I was working with two guys. They love golf. I hate golf. There's a lot cheaper ways to get frustrated than golf. But that's their world. So I went out and I bought a golf set. I took lessons. I still hate golf. And I'm still terrible at it. But that wasn't the issue. You see, we, sometimes we just have to be intentional in how we engage with those people that God has brought into our sphere of influence. Because we love them and care about their spiritual lives. So you got to love the loss. You gotta enter their world. The third thing is Jesus creates curiosity. And he does this on two levels. He creates curiosity by his lifestyle, and then in a moment we'll see he also creates curiosity by his words. But let's look at the lifestyle thing. Verse nine. Um, the woman can't believe that he's talking to her, right? Because there's this social hierarchy, and he's violating the social hierarchy, and men don't talk to women, and men don't for sure, talk to Samaritan woman if you're a Jew. And she doesn't understand this. So she says, how can you ask me for a drink? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You know, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. And Jesus just had this habit of blowing up the conventions of his world. Because he had a whole different value system. He didn't care about position and rank or success or money, or power, or attractiveness. Those weren't the things that he was important to him. What he cared about was being compassionate and loving and the marginalized. And she got it. I, I, I mean, people looked at Jesus and they saw compassion. And in fact, the people who got angry at him got angry at him because they thought he was too compassionate. He was loving sinners. It was very evident from sitting around talking with these 10 guys. That is not the perception they have of Christians, of evangelicals. 
I mean, we, we, <laughs> we had some interesting conversations. I mean, first they asked me, what is an evangelical? And then they asked me, so do all you guys really support Trump? <laughs> and I'm going, let's talk. <laughs> because in their mind, and some of this because of the media of what's going on, and some of it is political, in their mind they see evangelicals as bigoted, narrow-minded, judgmental, condemning, unthoughtful, unintelligent, uneducated, they see us as haters, not as lovers. And Jesus had this way of negotiating his culture such that he could still speak against sin, but still be compassionate towards the sinner. And I'm not sure we figured that out very well. So I, I was trying to explain to these, you know, I'm a person who believes that the Bible is true. Let me explain what that means. I'm a, I'm a person who believes in the value of an unborn child. I don't think there's something magical that happens in the birth canal that takes this blob of flesh and turns it something intrinsically valuable. I think that happens before. My Jewish friend just couldn't understand that. But I said, you know what? I also care about the environment. And I have a reason to care about the environment because I, we're God's stewards of it and I think it's going to be eternal. You guys believe that someday it's going to just whimper and crush and come in on itself and cease to exist. Why should you care about whether that happens then or now? He said, and I, I care about the poor. And I care about the immigrant. And I care about women around the world and I care about education. And I care about issues of justice. And that's who an evangelical is to me. And somehow people aren't getting that. They're not walking away from us saying we're lovers. They're walking away from us saying we're haters. And it scares me. So she's curious. She's not only curious about his lifestyle, but she's curious about his words. And this is interesting. Look at this conversation he has with her in verse 10. Um, they're talking about physical water, but he uses that as a metaphor to talk about spiritual realities. And it's just this brilliant conversation that uh, really touches her where she's at. He says, if you knew the gift of God who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, would he give you living water? And now she's really curious, what's, what's this living water? He adapts to her. He listens to her. He comes into her world. So often when we do evangelism, we kind of have this canned approach, right? And we don't intend this to happen, but it becomes more about us than it's about them. We want to make sure we get out our little presentation so that we can walk away and feel good about what we've presented. And it's just not connecting at all. But you see, what evangelism really is, is having the courage to be transparent about how Jesus operates in your life and how he might operate in somebody else's and figuring out how to take this, this reality and bring it into to, to their world. And it absolutely fascinates me when you look at Jesus, he never has a canned approach to sharing about who he is 
with the lost. I mean, Nicodemus, it's about being born again. With a Samaritan woman, it's, it's about living water. And yet he's still communicating the same truth that he's the king and Messiah and the savior of the world. We've we got to figure out how to create a curiosity with our words that, that touches people in the deep places of their life because that's what Jesus does. And, and then notice in verse 15, her response to this conversation. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and I have to keep coming here to draw water. She says, I'm in. You know, and what does Jesus do? He gives an invitation, right? He says, raise your hand and pray the prayer and you've got it. Is that what Jesus does? No. Notice what Jesus does in the next verse. It just cracks me up. Verse 16. He says, go, go call your husband and come back. And you go, what? He says, I know you're really interested in Jesus and you think I'm going to solve all your problems. But that's not what really the gospel is ultimately about. You know, sometimes we shrink the gospel, we shortchange it. And we present Jesus as the solution to all your problems when Jesus is more than that. He's the savior who saves you from your ultimate brokenness. And if we don't get people to the point of seeing their brokenness, their true need, then we're really not presenting the gospel. So the fourth thing we learn from Jesus, he reveals her real need. And it's interesting, he says, Go get your husband. She says, I don't have one. In fact, he says, you're right. You have five, and the guy you're living with now isn't one of those five. This is a really, uh, you know, from a Jewish perspective, an immoral woman. She's ostracized not only by the Jews, but the, her own people, the Samaritans. That's why she's there at noon, right? Because people don't want to have anything to do with her, so she goes when nobody else is there. And Jesus is just brilliant. He makes her confront her brokenness, but doesn't condemn her. He just, he just speaks into that. He says, you know, you have this broken peace in you that you're so thirsty that you're, you're looking for something to fill it up. And you think if you can find just the right man, it'll make you whole. And you've tried five times and it hasn't worked and you're living with the six and you're still looking for something outside of you, something other than this living water to fill you up and it won't fill you up. And he's trying to communicate, look, the only thing that will really satisfy is me. It's Jesus. Notice what he says in, in verse 21, because he's really, you see, it's not enough just to raise your hand and pray a prayer and say, oh, I, I want to go to heaven and I want my sins forgiven. It's, it, it, becoming a believer is an act of repentance, a change in mind, a change in allegiance. It's, it, it's seeing Christ as king and saying, now I'm going to follow you with all I am and all I have, and I'm going to trust you for all you are to, to fix me at the deepest places of my life. That's what it means to be converted. And sometimes we make the gospel too easy and we give people false security. Oh, you prayed the prayer, you walked the aisle, you're, you're safe. Go live any way you want. It's not the gospel. The gospel calls you onto a journey of being a disciple. 
of making him Lord and King. And that's what makes it transformative. So notice what he says in verse 20. He says, woman, believe me, a time is coming. And the word there is karos, and it's this God moment. He's saying a time, it's a, a reference to his death. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on a mountain nor in Jerusalem. He says a time is coming when all the sacrifices are going to be done away with because I'm the ultimate sacrifice. You're not going to go ha- have to go to either temple. You just have to worship in spirit and truth. And that gets you to the last point. Not only do you have to reveal people's true need, but ultimately you have to talk about Jesus. Look at verse uh, 25 and 26. The woman said, I I know that Messiah called Christ King is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I'm the one speaking to you. I am he. Ultimately, we have to get people to Jesus and who he is, the Christ, the Messiah, the King, who's come to make everything right, who's died not only for our sin, but the sin of the world, who, who, who died to defeat evil and to destroy death, who changes everything, whose kingdom is breaking in. That's the gospel, and that's the Jesus we need to present. You see, the truth of the matter is, folks, is we live in a spiritually thirsty world. And we have the answer to that thirst. We need to love people. We need to enter their world. We need to create curiosity. We need to reveal their true need, and we need to talk about Jesus. And that's how you neighbor. There's an interesting book called Sahara Revealed. There's a bunch of stories about people in the Sahara Desert. And one of the stories that the author tells is about a man named Leg Leg. Leg Leg, with his assistant, is traveling across the desert. And as they go, their vehicle breaks down. And they have a few days' supply of water. And they figure they just have to survive long enough until somebody discovers them. So what they do is they dig some trenches under their vehicle. And during the day when the sun comes out, they crawl in those trenches and hide out in the shade. They don't eat anything because they're afraid that if they do, it'll dehydrate them more. And eventually they run out of water. They're incredibly thirsty. They're afraid they're going to die. So they decide to satisfy their thirst with the water from the radiator. Now, even in the Sahara Desert, you add chemicals to the water in your radiator. And because they're thirsty, they're willing to drink poison in the hope that it'll satisfy their thirst. I think there's a spiritual parallel I think we live in a culture and a world that is incredibly spiritually thirsty and people want to satisfy their thirst. They're just going to all the wrong places. They figure if they find the right man or the right woman, that'll satisfy the thirst. If they make enough money, that'll satisfy the thirst. If they have enough great experiences, the right sex, the right entertainment, the right, it'll satisfy. And it doesn't. It doesn't. 
I'm with these 10 guys. I mean, these 10 guys have made it from the world's perspective. They can do anything they want. They want to fish 80 days a year. They fish 80 days a year. They want to go to British Columbia or New Zealand or Patagonia. They go. And it's like they, they are just trying to find something that'll satisfy for more than a moment. And they, they can't. Because the emptiness is deeper. It's so deep that only Jesus can satisfy. That's the message we have for the world. We're going to end this morning by celebrating the Lord's Supper. Give you a few moments to prepare your hearts. And then come break the bread and dip it in the cup and realize that's a proclamation and a reminder. A proclamation to the world and a reminder to ourselves of the incredible gift we have in Jesus Christ. So prepare your hearts.